the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message today is entitled, The Life Giver. Now, we hope you enjoy this message. We'll bring it to you in two parts. If you miss any portion of this broadcast, you can always go to ReachingYourHeart.com. Look for the broadcast schedule there on the main page. And then scroll down till you find today's date. You'll find this broadcast available there for you in its entirety without interruption. And we invite you to go there. That's reachingyourheart.com. Let's get underway with today's broadcast. Here now is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentenko. Father, there's a paradox in our lives. On one side, we have to feel our need for you to be humbled, to be broken. On the other side, we need to be mended, to be lifted up, and to rejoice and have the benefits of an abundant life. And these two truths live in tension, but they meet in Jesus as a sacred truth that saves the soul. Lord, no one here is good enough to get to there. And no life has not at some point been shipwrecked on a rock. And so, Lord, give us Jesus, who is the life, the abundant life. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a young boy... And no, we don't need radiocarbon dating to figure that out. When I was a young boy, my mother found it difficult at times to reel me in when I got out of hand. Especially my adolescent years, I desired to be independent. I discovered with my children, it's the teenager thing. They used to go fishing with me, spend lots of time with Dad. Now, Dad, get lost. I want to be with my friends. We love you, though. It's the teenager thing. Independence. With it comes this tension between what you should do and what you want to do and how to form your own sense of purpose and values for the future. And so it's a natural part process of growing up. My mother was in the constant habit of praying for me. It was a good thing. And for this, I'm grateful. But there were times when she tried some other methods to affect change in my life that proved very effective. Every mother can be a little manipulative. Now, ladies, be easy on me here. When she has the best interest of her children at heart, there can be a little bit of that going on, Right? Okay. And my mother was no exception to this truth. I remember one day as she was trying to browbeat me into doing the right thing because I, like the children of Israel, had a stiff-necked child to deal with. And so it was hard to work with. Finally, in frustration, she raised her voice and she said with pathos and disappointment, You ungrateful child! That didn't affect me too much. I just kind of took it. Then she said, You have no appreciation at all. I wasn't affected by that either. Thick-skinned at that point in my life. And then she leveled the ultimate argument that reeled my heart back to her heart. She said, I gave you life. And that worked. What do you say to something like that? 
How do you respond? I gave you life. Obey. I gave you life. I'm your mother. Well, you owe that person something, don't you? Yes, you do. In this case, my mother was trying to use that argument to change my heart so I would come closer to what she desired for me. I'll never forget the awful force of that biological truth that came from her disappointed lips. I gave you life. I've used it on my children on occasion. I've turned to my son, John Michael and Donald. I gave you life. They kind of look at me with these wide eyes. It doesn't work always. Moms can do this. Dad's not as effective. In the Gospels, Jesus is more than a teacher, a healer, and a forgiver of sins. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. How Christ came for each of these vital roles. Friend, Christ came into this world for a far more important reason than these, as important as they all are. To really know Jesus. To see Jesus for who He is. Christ must become for you the life giver. There is no life without Him. No life that will last and no life that is worth living unless it is His life, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Gospel of John starts with a very profound statement right there in the opening prologue of the book, John 1.4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of humankind. The American poet Robert Frost, in reference to life, had this to say, In three words I can sum up everything I've learned about life. It goes on. I think the poet got it wrong. I think he was a little trite with a truth that is profound. Friend, there is no life without Jesus that goes on. Life didn't start on its own. I'm sorry to disappoint the evolutionary theorists in our world today, but life didn't start with their theory, and life didn't start from a primordial soup of muck. Life came from the hands of an organized mind that was able to arrange the DNA chain to produce the complex structures of the cell that are more complicated than the inner workings of New York City. Life is a gift, and life can't continue on its own. Without Jesus, there will be no life for the future and no life that's worth living. This statement in John faces the profound need of every man and woman who gropes for meaning in search of love and life and purpose. Friend, Jesus is the source of such a life that is worth living. The abundant life. Jesus didn't come to this world to offer you good advice. Christ came to this world to give you life. I recently enjoyed a journey in the Gospel of John mapping the linguistic associations in the original Greek from the bookend at the end of the book, the bookend at the beginning, moving the linguistic parallels that match in close proximity and symmetry, moving toward the center of the Gospel of John. It was one of the great thrills of my study life with the Lord last year. And the prophets and the apostles universally in the Bible used this linguistic technique, which we call chiastic associations, to demonstrate a central truth in relationship to two meaningful bookends. Every book in the Bible has this, I believe, where the bookends will match the center in some meaningful way, and the connections on the way are parallelisms that inform the reader. In the inspired poetic pattern in the Gospel of John, the sides of a document here these sides match linguistically and thematically to point us to the most important truth at the very middle of the book. On each side of the center in the Gospel of John, there is a discussion of life and there is a discussion of Jesus' coming that brings life. And the center matches the bookends. In 1 John 1.4 and 1 John 1.9, this basic idea is introduced in the bookends of the book on the first side. 
two truths. Jesus is life, and Christ comes to bring that life. John 1.4, in Him was life. The life was the light of man. John 1.9, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. On the other side of the book, in the Gospel of John, at the very end of the book, John 20.31, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And then the final narrative in John 21, Jesus is walking with Peter along the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. John, the beloved disciple, is walking behind them. Christ informs Peter that he will be crucified at the end of life to give glory to God. And then he turns to John and he says, well, what about him? John 21, 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Christ said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So we have life. We have Christ coming into the world at the beginning of the book. We have life and faith and Christ's return at the end of the book. On each side of the Gospel of John, we have these twin themes. In the exact linguistic center in John 10, verse 10, these two themes meet at the mountain peak of the chiasm as the most important reason for the Gospel of John. John 10, 10 is the exact linguistic center of the book. And the Bible reads, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And then Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is the core truth in the Gospel of John. God did not send His Son to this world, friend, to just make a theological statement and convince the world that God is smart. God sent Jesus into this world to save your life, to save your family's life, and to give you the abundant life. And this is the central truth for us all. Christ came into this world as the life giver. You know, if you're trying to make a course for yourself in this life without Jesus, you're going nowhere in a hurry without the life, capital L. If you're making plans for the future, and Christ is not the plan, capital P, for your future, then you have no future, no plan, no life that will really work in the end. If you want God to give you what you want, and you don't want the gift that God has given you in Jesus, then in the end, you won't have the life that is the gift, the life giver himself. Life is glued to Jesus. In him is life, unborrowed, underived. In him is the kind of life that we all want to live. Friend, Christ is more than a teacher, more than a healer, more than just a forgiver of sins. Christ is the life giver. John 3.16. I don't get tired of this verse. Do you? No. Good. It's the clearest verse in all the Bible on how you can receive the life. Let's just read it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, this verse could take our attention for an entire year. And we could not exhaust the depth and meaning of this simple yet profound statement, which is the Magna Carta of the human race. Christ is the life giver. But let us not forget that God gave us Jesus. That's what this verse is saying. God's love gave us the life giver. And the gift itself is love itself. In fact, the gift is a definition of love. In 1 John 4.16, John says, God is love. How do we know that? The gift of Jesus, friend, is the proof that God 
is love. By giving, he has defined what love is. God gave the life giver to give us life. The American long distance runner who broke numerous world records. I used to be a long distance runner as a teenager. And I heard of Stephen Prefontaine. He was one of those idyllic examples of what every runner should be like. Who gave his whole heart in his race. Who set one record after another. And who loved to run for the joy of running. He once said this. To give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. Friend, when God gave us Jesus... God gave us Himself, and He did not sacrifice the gift by giving anything less than His best. He sacrificed Himself in Jesus. I mean, He looked into the treasury of heaven's bank account. It was full, an infinite repository in the mind and heart of God. And to save you, to save this planet, there was a bank transaction that occurred at the cross of Calvary. He emptied Heaven's bank account when Christ died on the cross so that all the riches of heaven were deposited into this world so that you and I, that we can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave us the life giver and God was in Christ. John 3.16 that verse we've just considered here was given to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher of the Jews who came to Jesus by night. The most simple statement and profound was given to a man who was part of a school of learning that prided itself on how complicated they could get. And so Christ reduced it down for him. Just before Jesus meets the woman at the well in the following scene in the Gospel of John, this theme of John 3.16 is repeated to set the stage for her entry into the kingdom of God in John 3.36, very similar to John 3.16. John writes, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. Now look at that verse. It's very clear when you analyze this verse that obedience is faith. That if you have faith in the Son of God, that makes you obedient. The Bible in the book of Romans calls this the obedience of faith or the obedience that is faith. So how can a sinful human being who struggles with life patterns, who has ups and downs, how can a sinful human being who is imperfect obey God? And this verse would reveal to you and me that it is by faith in Jesus we obey God. Obedience is faith. And we should not gauge it by how perfect we are or not. We should gauge it by how glued we are to Jesus by faith. It says, The one who does not have the Son shall not see life, the wrath of God rests upon him. Life, friend, is in the Son. And whoever has Jesus has the life of God inside the heart. You know, true religion, we talk about religion from time to time. I'm going to tell you what it's not. True religion is not about the facts you can muster to look smart in church. Ah, silence, huh? It's not about the precision of your theology to inform the ignorant. It's not about some new idea you can gum up to make yourself feel like you're on the cutting edge of truth, as important as that is. It's not about prophecy, which I study intricately. It's not about prophecy in and of itself without the testimony of Jesus, which the book of Revelation tells us is what really prophecy is about. The woman at the well is the perfect example of the whosoever of John 3.16. 
Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. She came to Jesus in the heat of the day. Nicodemus was a man greatly respected. She was a woman despised because of her unkempt life. Nicodemus was a teacher of the Jews, the chosen people. She was just a Samaritan outcast, a member of the hated race, exactly the opposite. Nicodemus took three and a half years to accept Jesus. She received him by faith right there in a single day at Jacob's well. Christ died for the whosoever of John 3.16. And the woman at the well is the perfect example of belief in Jesus in the Gospel of John. She's an example of Christ coming to save someone and to give them the abundant life. She came to draw water on a hot day and there He shared with her the water of life that saves the soul from the fires of hell. And He was the living spring for a person in a parched and barren land. In verse 5, John writes that Jesus came to a city of Samaria called Sychar. Now Sychar literally means in the Greek language drunkenness. She lived in a place that prided itself on drinking intoxicated beverages that would numb the senses. And Jesus came to faith-forsaken land deliberately in His journey to the city of drunkenness to find a glass of cold water, to ask a request from a woman that people naturally avoided. There's a spiritual paradox in the air here. In the Gospel of John, this is Jesus' second journey to Galilee. In John 1, Nathanael found Jesus under the fig tree on the first day. On the third day, Jesus came to Cana of Galilee to turn the water into wine. There is a three-day movement in the first two chapters of John from the tree in which he sees Nathanael to the feast. It's a foretaste of the three-day movement from the tree, the cross of Calvary, to the joy of the resurrection morning, the feast of life that comes when Christ is resurrected. And so it was the first sign that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. In the story of the woman at the well, we find the same three-day pattern as the marriage feast at Cana. In John 4.1, Jesus starts another journey from Judea to Galilee, just like the first scene and the first sign. He meets the woman at the well on the first day. And three days later in Galilee, He raises up a young boy in John 5 from his deathbed. And there is a movement here, just like in the first sign, but this time it's from a well on the first day to the raising up of the ruler's son on the third day. A movement to life. And John ties it all together in John 4.53. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. So we should not read the Gospel of John without an eye for the intricacies of the narrative. Christ's death and resurrection are being mapped out in the storylines that lead us to the theme of life. The three-day movement from the fig tree to the marriage feast at Cana, the, the first sign of the movement from the cross, the tree, to the resurrection. The three-day movement from the woman at the well to the raising up of the ruler's son was the second sign of the cross and the resurrection. Now verse 6 says it was the sixth hour when Jesus was there. The sixth hour is very important in the Gospel of John. It's the hour that Jesus was carried out and He was sent out to be crucified. And in that same hour, He said, I thirst. This story we find is a prelude to the cross. 
It's the foretaste of the fountain of water that would flow from Christ's side when the Roman spear would pierce his side and blood and water would flow out. And so the life giver takes his place at the well of drunkenness. The very one who would be opened up to be the well of life for the world is right there in a prophetic foretaste of what will happen at the cross in the form of a thirsty and travel-worn stranger in a faith-forsaken land. He is the well of life. John 4 verse 7 continues the story. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now, I have noticed something in the life of Jesus. Christ will either make a request or ask a question rather than pounding a point into someone's life. And so he asks a simple courtesy of a woman in which it was the custom of Jews to thoroughly ignore. He says, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. In, in John 4, 6, John records that Jesus was wearied when he sat down at the well. Remember, it's the sixth hour and Jesus says, give me a drink. When Christ came to the cross, he was weary with my sins and yours. At the sixth hour, he cried out from the cross, I thirst. And what is the thirst of Jesus in the context of John 4? Friend, it's not the thirst for water. It's the thirst for a lonely and lost soul who cannot find her way to God unless God comes to her with life. John 4, 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? This is perhaps the most important question you can ask in your life. It's a lot more important than trying to have a philosophical construct for existence. Friend, the question here is the salient one. Where do you get this living water? I mean, that's practical and profound. Look at verse 13, John 4. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Now, he's speaking there of the water of Jacob's well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, he will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Notice what she does not say. In verse 14, Christ offers her the water as a gift, the life of God in the Holy Spirit. That's what the water symbolizes. It comes from Jesus as a gift. Think about it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't barter for it. You can't bargain with God to get it. It comes as a gift. And that also means you cannot manipulate God into giving it to you. Christ said, whoever drinks of this water that I shall give him will never thirst. She said, sir. Now look how long it takes her to respond. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. I mean, what kind of response must the heart have for an offer like that? An instant one of faith, an instant one of desire. Give me the gift, sir. 
She stood right there at Jacob's well. The land was a special spot to the Samaritans. It was a sacred spot. Despised by the Jews, they found their link to Jacob right there at that well. It was an anchor point for their self-importance. They came to that well to get water. It was a sign that even if the Jews had rejected them, somehow Jacob hadn't. And somehow they had a link to Father Abraham. It was the well at Shechem on the piece of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. It was more than just the site for a well. It was the place they buried Joseph's bones. It was a dead spot too. Joshua 24.32, we find this insight. The bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the portion of the ground which Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. The book of Genesis begins with life. Adam was made to live forever. He sinned. And it ends with a dead man's bones in Egypt. It starts with the creation of Adam and it ends with the death and mummification of Joseph. Genesis 50, 24-26. It essentially says Joseph made them swear an oath that they would take his bones and they would take them back and they would not leave them in Egypt. And so where did they go? They went right there to the vicinity, right where Jacob's well was at. So Jesus sat down that day at a well that was near the place they buried Joseph's bones. Friend, It's possible to come to a place that offers life and discover that there's only death there. It's possible to rely on the past and your heritage, your tradition, and for the past to be nothing more than a dead man's bones that comes from Egypt. Well, unfortunately, we need to leave it there for today's Reaching Your Heart. Broadcast is entitled The Life Giver. Now, if you have any questions, you can always go to the website, reachingyourheart.com. That's reachingyourheart.com. You'll find this message under the broadcast schedule there on the main page. The Life Giver. Thanks for listening today to Reaching Your Heart. Please stop by the worship service this Saturday at 11 o'clock. The new address is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. That again is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. And if you would like more information, you can go to the website reachingyourheart.com. Thanks for listening. And as always, we pray that God is reaching your heart. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.